18. W was launched at the Germans all along the line from Chateau 3 on the Marne to the Aisne northwest of Soissons. The foe was taken completely by surprise and town after town fell with very little resistance. Later the resistance stiffened but the Allies continued to advance. Cavalrymen assisted the infantry and tanks in large numbers. Helped to clean out the machine gun nests. The Americans who fought side by side with the French won the unbounded admiration of their comrades. Thousands of prisoners were taken with large numbers of heavy cannon, great quantities of ammunition and thousands of machine guns. By the 20th Soissons was threatened, the Germans finding themselves caught in a dangerous salient and attacked fiercely on both flanks, retreated hurriedly to the north bank of the Marne and still farther. Meanwhile things were going badly for the Austrians. After its retreat in 1917 to the line of the Piave River, the Italian army had been reorganized and strengthened under General Diaz who had succeeded General Cadorna in command. French and British regiments had been sent to assist in holding the line, and later some American forces. The Austrians began an offensive June 15 along a 100-mile front, crossing the Piave in several places. For three days they made violent attacks on the Montello Plateau, and along the Piave from St. Andrea to Sandonia and at Cape Ocile, 20 miles from Venice. Then the Italians, British, French and Americans counterattacked and within three days had turned the great Austrian offensive into a rout, killing thousands, taking thousands of prisoners, and capturing an immense amount of war material including the Austrians' heavy caliber guns, the whole Austrian scheme to advance into the fertile Italian plains where they hoped to find food for their hungry soldiers, failed completely, it was practically the end of Austria and the beginning of the end for Germany, Bulgaria gave up September 26 due to heavy operations by the French, Italians and Serbians during July, August and September, in Albania, Macedonia and along the Vardar River to the boundaries of Bulgaria, they signed an armistice September 29th and the King of Bulgaria abdicated October 3rd, Turkey being in a hopeless position through the surrender of Bulgaria, and the success of the British forces under General Allenby, kept up a feeble resistance until the end of October when she too surrendered. The collapse of Austria-Hungary followed closely on that of Turkey. They kept up a show of resistance and suffered a number of disastrous defeats until the end of October when they raised the white flag. An armistice was signed by the Austrian representatives and General Diaz for the Italians. November 3rd, on the anniversary of Britain's entry into the war. August 4th, Field Marshal Hay, Commander-in-Chief of the British Forces issued a special order of the day. The opening paragraph of which was, The conclusion of the fourth year of the war marks the passing of the period of crisis. We can now with added confidence, look forward to the future. On August 4th, General Pershing reported, The full fruits of victory in the counter-offensive begun so gloriously by Franco-American troops on July 18th, were reaped today, when the enemy who met his second great defeat on the Marne, was driven in confusion beyond the line of the Bizzle. The enemy in spite of suffering the severest losses, has proved incapable of stemming the onslaught of our troops, fighting for liberty side by side with French, British and Italian veterans, in the course of the operations, 8.400 prisoners and 133 guns have been captured by our men alone, our troops have taken fizzms by assault and hold the south bank of the Bizzle in this section, on August 8th, the British and French launched an offensive in Picardy, pressed forward about 7 miles on a front of 20 miles, astride the river some and captured several towns and 10.000 prisoners. It was in this engagement that the hard fighting at Chipeoli Ridge occurred. 
in which the Americans so ably assisted, notably former National Guardsmen from Chicago and vicinity. Montdidier was taken by the French August 10th. The British also continued to advance and by the 11th the Allies had captured 36.000 prisoners and more than 500 guns. A French attack August 19-20 on the Wazane front, netted 8.000 prisoners and liberated many towns. On the 21st Lassigny was taken by the French. This was the cornerstone of the German position south of the Avra River. On August 29th the Americans won the important battle of Gouvigny. By September 2nd the Germans were retreating on a front of 130 miles, from Ypres south to Noyon. By the 9th the Germans had been driven back to the original Hindenburg line, where their resistance began to strengthen. On September 12th the American army, led by General Pershing, won a great battle in the attack on and wiping out of the famous St. Mihiel salient. This victory forced the enemy back upon the vote on Hindenburg line, with the French paralleling him from Verdun to the Moselle. Pershing's forces continued fighting steadily, wearing out the Germans by steady pressure. On September 26 the Americans began another offensive along a front of 20 miles from the Meuse River westward through the Argonne Forest. This developed into one of the bloodiest battles of the war for the Americans. On September 29 American and British troops smashed through the Hindenburg Line at its strongest point between Cambrai and St. Quentin. British troops entered the suburbs of Cambrai and outflanked St. Quentin. 22,000 prisoners and more than 300 guns were captured. Meanwhile the Belgians tore a great hole in the German line, 10 miles from the North Sea, running from Dixmude southward. On October 3rd the French launched three drives, one north of St. Quentin, another north of Reims, and a third to the east in Champagne. All were successful, resulting in the freeing of much territory and the capture of many prisoners. On October 4th the Americans resumed the attack west of the Meuse. In the face of heavy artillery and machine gun fire, troops from Illinois, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and West Virginia, forced the Germans back to the so-called Creamhilda line. In the Champagne, American and French troops were moving successfully. On the 6th the Americans captured St. Etienne, on the 9th they reached the southern outskirts of Chivry and entered Chonwood. On the same day the armies of Field Marshal Haig made a clean break through the Hindenburg system on the west through a 20-mile gap. They advanced from 9 to 12 miles, penetrating almost to the Sel and Samba rivers. On October 12th the British General Rawlinson, with whom an American division had been operating, sent a telegram of congratulation to the commander of the division, which comprised troops from Tennessee, in which he highly praised the gallantry of all the American troops. French troops on October 13th captured the fortress of Lafayette the strongest point on the south end of the old Hindenburg line. They also entered Lyon and occupied the forest of St. Gobain. On October 15th the Americans took and passed St. Juvene after desperate fighting. On October 16th they occupied the town of Grand Prix, a place of great strategic importance, being the junction of railways feeding a large part of the German armies. The Germans now began a retreat on an enormous scale in Belgium. So fast did they move that the British. French and Belgians could not keep in touch with them. The North Sea ports of Belgium were speedily evacuated. Northwest of Grand Pre the Americans captured Talma Farm October 23rd. After a stiff machine gun resistance, victories continued to be announced from day to day from all portions of the front. On November 1st the Americans participated in a heavy battle, taking Champagne and Landers at St. George, which enabled them to threaten the enemy's most important line of communication. 
On November 4th the Americans reached Stenay and on the 6th they crossed the Meuse. By the 7th they had entered Sedan, the place made famous by the downfall of Napoleon III in the War of 1870. On other parts of the American front the enemy retreated so fast that the infantry had to resort to motor cars to keep in touch with him. It was the same on other fronts. The Germans put up a resistance at the strong fortress of Metz, which the Americans were attacking November 10th and 11th. Armistice negotiations had been started as early as October 5th and were concluded November 11th. The state saw the complete collapse of the German military machine and will be one of the most momentous days in history, as it marked the passing of an old order and the inauguration of a new era for the world. In the armistice terms every point which the Americans and Allies stipulated was agreed to by the Germans. The last shot in the war is thus described in an Associated Press dispatch of November 11th. Thousands of American heavy guns fired the parting shot to the Germans at exactly 11 o'clock this morning. The line reached by the American forces was staked out this afternoon. The Germans hurled a few shells into Verdun just before 11 o'clock. On the entire American front from the Moselle to the region of Sedan, there was artillery activity in the morning. All the batteries preparing for the final salvos. That many batteries the artillerists joined hands, forming a long line as the lanyard of the final shot. There were a few seconds of silence as the shells shot through the heavy mist. Then the gunners cheered. American flags were raised by the soldiers over their dugouts and guns and at the various headquarters. Soon afterward the boys were preparing for luncheon. All were hungry as they had breakfasted early in anticipation of what they considered the greatest day in American history. The celebration, which occurred November 11th, upon announcement of the news, has never been equaled in America. It spontaneously became a holiday and business suspended voluntarily. Self-restraint was thrown to the winds for nearly 24 hours in every city, town and hamlet in the country. There was more enthusiasm, noise and processions than ever marked any occasion in this country and probably eclipsed anything in the history of the world. Illustration, Return of the 15th New York, 369th Infantry, Sean Swinging Up Illinois Avenue, New York City where they received a royal welcome. Chapter XXIX. Homecoming Heroes New York greets her own ecstatic day for old 15th whites and blacks to honor the monster demonstration many dignitaries review troops parade of martial pomp cheers, music, flowers and feasting, Hayward scrapping babies, officers share glory then came Henry Johnson similar scenes elsewhere. No band of heroes returning from war ever were accorded such a welcome as that tendered to the homecoming 369th by the residents of New York, Manhattan Island and vicinity, irrespective of race. Being one of the picturesque incidents of the war, the like of which probably will not be repeated for many generations, if ever, it well deserves commemoration within the pages of this book, inasmuch as no more graphic, detailed and colorful account of the day's doings has been printed anywhere. We cannot do better than quote in its entirety the story which appeared in the great newspaper, The World of New York, on February 18, 1919, the parade and reception during which the Negro troops practically owned the city, occurred the priesting day. The world account follows, the town that's always ready to take off its head and give a hoop for a man who's done something no matter who or what he was before. As the old Tommy Atkins song has it turned itself loose yesterday in welcoming home a regiment of its own fighting sons that not only did something, but did a whole lot in winning democracy's war, in official records, and in the histories that youngsters will study in generations to come. This regiment will probably always be known as the 369th Infantry, 
USA, but in the hearts of a quarter million or more who lined the streets yesterday to greet it. It was no such thing. It was the old 15th New York. And so it will be in the city's memory, archives and in the folklore of the descendants of the men who made up its straight, smartly stepping ranks. New York is not race proud nor race prejudiced. That this 369th Regiment, with the exception of its 89 white officers, was composed entirely of Negroes, made no difference in the shouts and flag-waving and handshakes that were bestowed upon it. New York gave its old 15th the fullest welcome of its heart, through scores of thousands of cheering white citizens, and then through a greater multitude of its own color. The regiment, the first actual fighting unit to parade as a unit here, marched in midday up Fifth Avenue and through Harlem, there to be almost assailed by the colored folks left behind when it went away to glory. Later it was feasted and entertained, and this time very nearly smothered with hugs and kisses by kin and friends, at the 71st Regiment Armory. Still later, perfectly behaved and perfectly ecstatic over its reception, the regiment returned to Camp Upton to await its mustering out. You knew these dark lads a year and a half ago, maybe, as persons to be slipped a dime as a tip and scarcely glanced it. They were your elevator boys, your waiters. The Pullman Porters who made up your berths though of course you'd never dare to slip a Pullman Porter a dime. But, if you were like many a prosperous white citizen yesterday you were mighty proud to grasp Jim or Henry or Sam by the hand and then boast among your friends that you possessed his acquaintance. When a regiment has the medal honors of France upon its flags and it has put the fear of God into Germany time after time, and its members wear two gold stripes, signifying a year's fighting service, on one arm, and other stripes signifying wounds, on the other, it's a whole lot different outfit from what it was when it went away, and that's the old 15th NY, and the men are different and that's Jim and Henry and Sam, call, William Hayward, the distinguished white lawyer and one-time public service commissioner, who was proud to head these fighters, was watching them line up for their departure shortly after 6 o'clock last evening, when someone asked him what he thought of the day, it has been wonderful, he said, and he gazed with unconcealed tenderness at his men. It's been far beyond my expectations, but these boys deserve it. There's only one thing missing. I wish some of General Gourod's French boys, whom we fought beside, could be here to see it. The colonel slapped his hand affectionately upon the shoulder of his dark-skinned orderly. How about that, Hamilton, old boy? He inquired. That's right, colonel. Sir, General Gourod's boys sure would have enjoyed this day. The orderly responded as he looked proudly at the colonel. There's that sort of paternal feeling of the white officers toward their men, and that filial devotion of the men to their officers, such as exists in the French army. Much as the white population of the town demonstrated their welcome to the regiment, it was, after all, those of their own color to whom the occasion belonged, and they did themselves proud in making it an occasion to recall for years in Harlem, San Juan Hill and Brooklyn, where most of the fighters were recruited at the official reviewing stand at 60th Street. The kinsfolk and admirers of the regimental lads began to arrive as beforehandedly as 9 o'clock. They had tickets, and their seats were reserved for them. The official committee had seen to that and nine-tenths of the yellow wooden benches were properly held for those good Americans of New York whom birth by chance had made dark-skinned instead of fair. But this was their day of days, and they had determined using their own accentuation to be there and to be there early. The first comers plodded across 59th Street from the San Juan Hill District, and it was fine to see them. There seemed to be a little military swank even to the youngsters, 
as platoons of them stepped along with faces that had been scrubbed until they shone. Had a woman a bit of fur, she wore it. Had a man a top hat or jean or vintage date of material he displayed that. All heads were up. Hi, eyes alight. Beaming smiles everywhere. No not quite everywhere. Occasionally there was to be seen on a left sleeve a black band with a gold star, which told the world that one of the old 15th would never see the region west of Columbus Circle, because he had closed his eyes in France, and the faces of the wearers of these were in laughing, but they held themselves just as proudly as the rest. Few of the welcomers went flagless, no matter whether a man or a woman wore a jewel or a pair of patent leather boots as a sign of class, or tramped afoot to the stand or arrived in a limousine. Nearly every dark hand held the nation's emblem. Nearly every one wore white badges bearing the letters, Welcome, Fighting 15th, or had pennants upon which stood out the regimental insignia a coiled rattlesnake of white on a black field. Those colored folk who could afford it journeyed to the stand in closed automobiles. Gorgeously gowned women alighted with great dignity beneath the admiring gaze of their humbler brethren. Taxis brought up those whose fortunes, perhaps, were not of such amplitude. Handsomes and hacks conveyed still others, and one party came in a plumber's wagon, its women members all bundled up in shawls and blankets against the cold, but grinning delightedly as the whole stand applauded. Children by the thousands lined the east side of the avenue boy scouts and uniformed kids and little girls with their school books under their arms, and they sang to the great delight of the crowd. Just why it was that when Governor Smith and former Governor Whitman and acting Mayor Moran and the other reviewers appeared behind a cavalcade of mounted policemen, the youngsters struck up that army classic. Oh, how I hate to get up in the morning. No one could tell, but it gave the reviewers and the crowd a laugh. With the state and city officials were the members of the Board of Aldermen, the Board of Estimate, Major General Thomas J. Barry, Vice Admiral Albert Gleaves, Secretary of State. Francis Hugo, Rodman Wanamaker and in a green hat and big fur coat William Randolph Hearst. Secretary Baker of the War Department was unable to attend, but he did the next best thing and sent his colored assistant, Emma J. Scott. The reviewers arrived at 11.30 and had a good long wait, for at that time the paraders had not yet left 23rd Street, but what with the singing, and the general atmosphere of joyousness about the stand, there was enough to occupy everyone's time. There was one feature which took the eye pleasingly the number of babies which proud mothers held aloft, fat pickaninnies, mostly in white, and surrounded by adoring relatives. These were to see and be seen by their daddies for the first time. Laughingly, the other day, call, Bill Hayward spoke of our boys' posthumous children, and said he thought there were quite a few of them. Some of our boys had to go away pretty quickly, he reminisced. Some of them were only married about twenty minutes or so. Oh Colonel, said the modest Major Little on that occasion, well, maybe it was a trifle longer than twenty minutes, admitted Bill, but anyhow, there was the regiment's posthumous children in the stand, it was 11.26 when the old 15th stepped away from 23rd Street and 5th Avenue, they looked the part of the fighting men they were, at an exact angle over their right shoulders were their long bayonet rifles, around their waists were belts of cartridges, on their heads were their tin hats the steel helmets that saved many a life, as was attested by the dents and scars in some of them. Their eyes were straightforward and their chins, held high naturally, seemed higher than ever because of the leather straps that circled them. The fighters wore spiral puttees and their heavy hobbed hiking shoes, which caused a metallic clash as they scraped over the asphalt. At the head of the line rode four platoons of mounted police, twelve abreast, and then, afoot and alone, 
Call, Hayward, who organized the 15th, drilled them when they had nothing but broomsticks to drill with, fathered them and loved them, and turned them into the fightingest military organization any man's army could want. The French called them hell fighters. The Germans after a few mix UPS named them bloodlisted Schwarzman or bloodthirsty black men. But call, Bill, when he speaks of them uses the words those scrapping babies of mine, and they like that best of all. Incidentally when out of his hearing they refer tenderly to him as old Bill, that fightin' white man. So it's 50-50. The colonel had broken a leg in the war. So there were those who looked for him to a limp as he strode out to face the hedge of spectators that must have numbered a quarter of a million. But nary a limp, with his full six feet drawn up erectly and his strong face smiling under his tin hat. He looked every bit the fighting man as he marched up the center of the avenue. Highlighted every few feet by enthusiasts who knew him socially or in the law courts or in the business of the Public Service Commission. Didn't your leg hurt you, Bill? His friends asked him later. Sure it hurt me, he said. But I wasn't going to peg along on the proudest day of my life. Which this day was. Behind the colonel marched his staff. Loot. Call. W.A. Pickering. Capt. Adjutant Robert Ferguson. Major E.A. Willymore. Regimental served. Major C.A. Condit can be W. Cheeseman, Regimental Service, L.S. Payne, H.W. Dickerson and W.W. Cheeshoom, and Service, R.C. Craig, D.E. Norman and Kenneth Billups. The police band was at the front of the line of march, but it was a more famous band that provided the music to which the Black Buddies stepped northward and under the arch of victory the wonderful jazz organization of Loot, Jimmy Europe, the one colored commissioned officer of the regiment, but it wasn't jazz that started them off. It was the historic march to Regiment de Sambret Muse, which has been France's most popular parade piece since Napoleon's day. As rendered now it had all the crash of bugle fanfares which is its dominant feature, but an additional undercurrent of saxophones and basses that put a new and more peppery tang into it. One hundred strong, and the proudest band of blowers and pounders that ever reeled off marching melody loot. Jimmy's boys lived fully up to their reputation. Their music was as sparkling as the sun that tempered the chill day. Four of their drums were instruments which they had captured from the enemy in Alsace. And Mon, what a beating was imposed upon those sheepskins. I'd very much admire to have them bush Germans a-watching me today, said the drummer before the march started. The old 15th doesn't say bosh when it refers to the Floyd Pete. Bush is the word it uses, and it throws in German for good measure. Twenty abreast the heroes marched through a din that never ceased. They were as soldierly a lot as this town, now used to soldierly outfits, has ever seen. They had that peculiar sort of half-careless, yet wholly perfect, step that the French display. Their lines were straight, their rifles at an even angle, and they moved along with the jaunty ease and lack of stiffness which comes only to men who have hiked far and frequently. The colored folks on the official stand cut loose with a wild, Swelling shriek of joy as the police band fell out at 60th Street and remained there to play the lads along when necessary and when now entirely itself the khaki-clad regiment filling the street from curb to curb. Step by, Colonel Hayward, with his hand at salute, turned and smiled happily as he saw his best friend, former Governor Whitman, standing with his other good friend, Governor Al Smith, with their silk tiles raised high over their heads. It was the governor's first review in New York and the first time he and Mr. Whitman had got together since Inauguration Day. They were of different parties, but they were united in greeting Colonel Bill and his babies, from the stand, from the Knickerbocker Club across the street.
from the nearby residences and from the curbing sounded shouts of individual greetings for the commander and his staff, but these were quickly drowned as a roar went up for Lieutenant Europe's band, with its commander at the head not swinging a baton like a common ordinary drum major, but walking along with the uniform and side arms of an officer, the salute to the 85th, which they learned from their comrade regiment of the French army of General Gourad, was what they were playing a stirring thing full of bugle calls and drum rolls, which Europe says is the best march he ever heard. So swiftly did the platoon sweep by that it took a quick eye to recognize a brother or a son or a lover or a husband, but the eyes in the stand were quick, and there were shouts of oh, Bill, hey, boy, here's your mammy, Oliver, look at your baby. It wasn't learned whether this referred to a feminine person or one of those posthumous children Colonel Hayward spoke about. Hallelujah, Sam, there you are. Back home again, halfway down the ranks of the 2.992 paraders appeared the colors, and all hats came off with double reverence, for the stars and stripes and the blue regimental standard that two husky ebony lads held proudly aloft had been carried from here to France, from France to Germany and back again, and each bore the bronze token with its green and red ribbon that is called the Croix de Guerre. Keen eyes could see these little medals swinging from the silk of the flags, high toward the top of the poles. At the end of the lines which filled the avenue came a single automobile. First, with a round-faced smiling white officer sitting in it and gazing happily from side to side. This was Major Lori Lord Spencer, who was so badly wounded that he came back in advance of the outfit some weeks ago. There was a special racket of cheers for him. And then another for Major David L. Esperance, also wounded and riding. Then a far different figure, but one of the most famous of the whole war, Henry Johnson. That Henry, once a mild-mannered chauffeur, who to protect his comrade, Needham Roberts, waded into a whole patrol of Bush Germans with a lot of hand grenades, his rifle and his trusty steel in the shape of a bolo knife, and waded into them so energetically that when the casualties were counted there were four dead foemen in front of him, thirty-four others done up so badly they couldn't even crawl away, and heaven knows how many more had been put to flight, and now Henry, in commemoration of this exploit, was riding alone in an open machine. In his left hand he held his tin hat. In his right he held high over his head a bunch of red and white lilies which some admirer had pressed upon him. And from side to side Henry about as black as any man in the outfit if not a trifle blacker bowed from the waist down with all the grace of a French dancing master. Yes, he bowed. And he grinned from ear to ear and he waved his lilies. And he didn't overlook a bet in the way of taking and liking all the tributes that were offered to him. A fleet of motor ambulances, back of Henry, carried the wounded men who were unable to walk, nearly two hundred of them, but though they couldn't walk, they could laugh and wave and shout thanks for the cheers, all of which they did, almost before the happy colored folk could realize at the official stand that here were their lads back home again, the last of the parade rolled along and it was over, with that formation and the step that was inspired by Lieutenant Europe's band and by the police band which stood at 60th Street and kept playing after the music of the other died away it required only 17 minutes for the regiment to pass. From this point north the welcome heightened in intensity. Along the park wall the colored people were banked deeply, everyone giving them the first ranks nearest the curb. Wives, sweethearts and mothers began to dash into the ranks and press flowers upon their men and march alongside with them arm in arm, but this couldn't be, and Colonel Hayward had to stop the procession for a time and order the police to put the relatives back on the sidewalks, but that couldn't stop their noise, the residents of the avenue paid fine tribute to the dusky marshers, 
It seemed inspiring, at 65th Street, to see Mrs. Vincent Astor standing in a window of her home, a great flag about her shoulders and a smaller one in her left hand, waving salutes, and Henry Frick, at an open window of his home at 73D Street, waving a flag and cheering at the top of his voice. At the corner of 86th Street was a wounded colored soldier wearing the Croix de Guerre and the Victoria Cross as well. Colonel Hayward pressed to his side with a hearty handshake, exclaiming, Why, I thought you were dead. It was one of his boys long ago invalid home. Member sir. Colonel. Not me. I ain't dead by a long ways yet. Colonel. Sir. Said the lad. How's it going? Colonel. Asked a spectator. Fine. Said the commander. All I'm worrying about is whether my boys are keeping step. He needn't have W.